Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Chris here again with another episode of Super Theism. And unfortunately, uh, Ross will not be joining me tonight. So it's just going to be a solo run on my part, unless somebody else, you know, happens to call in. But, uh, so I wanted to talk about, kind of discuss, uh, I've talked about this guy uh, numerous times on past calls, uh, Chris Kendall from Hoaxbusters, the Hoaxbusters call here on TalkShoe. And uh, I kind of want to talk about his uh, his latest call on there from uh, Monday. He titled it The Mystic Chords of Henry Ford, and I'll have it linked in the description for you guys because I'm going to be talking about it here just so you guys can go listen to it to make sure that I'm not going to be misrepresenting any of his arguments or his claims that he made in that show. But basically, I'm I'm pretty much going to... uh, I'm going to demolish everything that he said in that podcast and uh, I really hope he listens to this, and I hope that he uh, calls into my show someday, and we can uh, we can we can have a little philosophical uh, discussion. I'd really enjoy that because uh, for a guy who believes the Bible, he really uh, makes a lot of claims that are totally unbiblical. It's, it's amazing how inconsistent his uh, his his philosophy is. But I'm just going to get right into it here. Um, so in this latest call that Chris did, he uh, he kind of had another diatribe against the flat earth theory. And I just want to, I'm going to kind of read my notes here and go over uh, kind of my thoughts about his call. And you guys will have to listen to it to really uh, understand what I'm saying, but just to provide you with context. So I said, so basically to give you the gist, the summary, um, Chris Kendall is really antagonistic to this flat earth view. Um, But his arguments for why and such are, are very, are just as invalid as the arguments that he claims um, flat Earth, or that he accuses flat earthers of using, which admittedly I would agree, uh, a lot of flat earthers are not operating off of a biblical epistemology. They're operating off of, you know, some kind of materialist or, you know, some other inductive, um, inductive, uh, method of reasoning, which is fallacious. Um, but, to kind of summarize my notes and my thoughts of this show, so I said, Chris Kendall's arguments are equally bad and invalid. 
his epistemology or his theory of knowledge is based on his own reason and sensation, which both reduce to the circular and arbitrary as opposed to deduction from revelation. Now, to kind of explain what I mean by that is, Chris Kendall, if you listen to this call, he appeals to his reason and his sensation, but he gives no justification for either of those things outside of themselves. He just, his justification for his reason and his sensation is, well, because this makes sense to me. My reason makes sense to me, therefore it's reasonable. So it's one big circle. Or, you know, oh, you know, my senses, I, 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 I think they're reliable because of what I observe or, or because of what I sense. I think my senses are reliable and I think I can trust them because because of what I observe and of what I sense. So it's also a big circle, big circular argument. See, and this is the main problem with all all reasoning and all logic and all philosophy that is not based out of or on divine revelation because what, what the problem with all of it is it is it with all arguments so to get to kind of illustrate this for the layman listening all arguments have to prove themselves out now what i mean by that is if you say you believe a why well, i'd ask you well why do you believe a well maybe you'd say because i believe a because of b I'd ask you, well, why do you believe B? Then you'd say, I believe C because of C, or I believe B because of C. Okay, well, eventually C is going to have to prove itself out. Okay, eventually C is going to have to prove C. See what I mean? Either C is going to have to prove itself, or you're going to end up with an infinite regress. See what I mean? Which is just going to reduce to the arbitrary. And a lot of the times, C proving C reduces to a circular argument. You see what I mean? For instance, you know, with Chris Kendall, he'll say, well, I, I think my senses are reliable because of what I sense. Or I think what my observation, I think I can trust my eyes because of what I observe. Well, that's a circular argument. In order to prove your senses, you would have to appeal to something outside of your senses. Otherwise, it just reduces to a, huge, a big circular argument. See that? Or like his reason, for example. How, do, how does Chris Kendall know that he's reasoning correctly? See, because a lot of atheists, materialists, and a lot of people who are rationalists, you know, people who claim to use reason, they never justify their reason. How do they know that they're reasoning correctly? Because reasoning presupposes that there's a standard of reasonableness. You see that? Some kind of objective standard of reasonableness that you'd measure your reason against to know that you're reasoning correctly or that you're to know that you're reasoning properly? Well, what's that objective standard of reasonableness? <laughs> Notice how they never give it? But they can't give it, because their, their justification for their reason is their reason. So again, it's one big circular argument. It just reduces to the, themselves as the authority. So 
so it's just arbitrary. I have a note in here that I can read to further illustrate that. So, people who will, you know, eventually have to defend that, what they'll do is they will eventually say that reasoning is impossible or isn't real in order to get out of this, which is another declaration that knowledge is impossible. They would be using reason to deny reason or thinking to deny thinking, which is self-contradictory and leads to being false. Because another thing about reason and all logic is it presuppose logic presupposes the basic laws of logic being, you know, the law of identity. Something cannot, something is the same with itself and different from another. You know, A is A. Or the law of, of uh, excluded middle, you know. Something can either be true or false. A statement can be either true or false. There's only two possible truth values. Um, and then the law of non-contradiction, you know, something cannot be A and not A at the same time. That violates the law of non-contradiction. All logic presupposes these laws. Okay, all reason. It's the, it's the funny thing <laughs> about uh, all materialists and atheists and, uh, you know, anybody who has an epistemology that's not based on revelation because they have no way to account for these laws or justify them because these laws are invariant, they're uh, um, immaterial, they're intelligible, they're only the products of mind, they're uh, immutable, they can't change, uh, they're universal, you know. All, all, all things of which it's an atheist or a materialist or anyone whose epistemology is not rooted in revelation cannot account for or justify. <clears throat> okay, so getting back to my note. Anything they say afterwards can't have an epistemology or justification for either. It's the same general problem as not knowing if your reasoning is proper. So it brings them back to the same problem again. If they try to get out of it that way, get out of how to how to justify their reasoning. Eventually, they will have to use their reason to justify their reason. In other words, I know my reasoning is valid because I check the validity of my reasoning using my reasoning. Therefore, I know my reasoning is valid because I check the validity of my reasoning using my reasoning. Therefore, see... It's just it just goes all it just goes around the circle, around and around and around. This is a big circular reduces to a circular argument. Eventually they will have to use their reason to justify their reason, which is a viciously circular argument. Whereas the believer appeals to God's revelation to justify his reason, which is virtuous circularity, and that is the difference. See now we, Ross and I our epistemology is one, you know, is based on revelation from Yahuwah, you know, the God of the Bible. His revelation, you know, extra-biblical and in the Bible, and his the innate, innate forms that he placed within man that allow us to comprehend and, and allow us to um, 
basically understand these abstractions and allow and and give us a basis and a uh, you know a justification for presupposing these abstractions, like these the laws of logic that I was just talking about earlier. Well, that's why we do that because th those those abstractions are actually within us. They're innate forms that exist within us, that God placed within us. Okay? That's also how a child can learn language from its parents. How could a child ever pick up on language and learn language from its parents? How could it ever attach any kind of meaning to these sounds that are coming out of its parents' mouth and attach these, you know, abstract, universal abstract concepts you know, and derive these universal abstract concepts from these sounds that its its parents are making. You know what I mean? That would indicate that there's some kind of compatibility there. Well, yeah. Well, it's because God placed these innate forms within man, you know, that are pre-programmed into us. There's a pre-programmed... Um, you know, language code within our DNA. You know, a universal language program or code you know, that gives us this uh, a priori or, you know, before the evidence, innate objective standard of intelligibility within us that allows us to, you know, gives an account, allows us to give an account and justify these universals, these abstractions, these propositions that exist in our mind and that existed in God's mind before us, that he uh, communicated to us by way of revelation, and also placed within our being, gives us that continuity and that uh, compatibility between our minds and his mind, and just like you know, between a child's mind and their parent's mind, even before the child knows language. See that? There's taught language. So, so to go back to my notes, on Chris's call and my criticisms. So I ask, how does Chris Kindle know he's reasoning correctly? Well, because he checked the validity of his reasoning using his reasoning. Therefore, oh look at that, it's a big circle. <laughs> and that's basically the that's basically the justification he gives in his call. He just He's like, oh, I, I think I'm reasoning correctly because when I reason the way I reason, it just makes sense to me. So, see that? It's kind of the defense he gives. He never, he never appeals to any objective standard for his to justify his reason outside of himself or outside of his reason. So it's just one big circle. Chris Kindle's starting points and axioms aren't based on Revelation or the Bible, so his epistemology crumbles to the circular, unjustified, and arbitrary anyway. What's most laughable about Kindle, and this is truly one of the most laughable things that he does throughout this call, it's actually quite disgusting about Kindle, is that he uh, he commits what's called the onus probandi fallacy, or... Uh, Shifting the burden of proof. He thinks the onus or burden of proof is on flat earthers, even though all the treasure, treasuries of the world's institutions and resources and, and funding have been behind 
the heliocentric theory for the past 500 years. And yet he thinks flat earthers have to prove their claims and that the burden's on them to prove their claims. <laughs> it's a complete joke. How How is the burden on flat earthers? It makes no sense. We don't have to prove our our skepticism of the globe earth model. The globe earth model should already have been proven by now. should have been proven hundreds of years ago. They've had all the treasuries of the world's institutions behind this theory for the past 500 years. All the funding, all the combined treasuries of all the world's institutions, and he thinks that the onus or the burden is on flat earthers to prove their claims? This is a complete joke. Disgusting. Another thing that's cute is that he argues for the Earth being a sphere because it has, quote-unquote, and I'm quoting, I'm actually quoting him here. He actually says this in this call. Because it has, quote, explanatory power, end quote. In other words, a pragmatic fallacy or an appeal to function. Okay, so <laughs> this is a real popular fallacy. People do this all the time. They try to appeal to function in order to, quote-unquote, prove something or attempt to prove something. Function cannot determine truth, guys. There's numerous, there is countless theories that are contradictory that have equal function, okay? Heliocentrism and geocentrism have equal function. They have equal function. You can assume that the Earth is the the reference point, or you can assume that the sun is the reference point. Both both models have equal function, but they're contradictory. So how? So which one's true? How can you know if they have equal function? If function's the determination of truth, well, if two things have equal function, then which one's true? How do you know? So it can't be the determination of truth just by that. Morris Klein admitted that Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry have equal function. Yet they're two contradictory theories of mathematics. Okay? <laughs> oh, man. The theory that light is a wave and the theory that light is a particle have equal function. Those are contradictory theories of light. Which one's true? I can go on and on with this. There's numerous things that have equal function. So function can't be the determination of truth. But yet, on the other hand, Chris Kindle rejects Darwinism, even though Darwinism has explanatory power. <laughs> so on what basis does he reject it? Oh, yeah, an arbitrary one. Just like, just like his basis for all of his arguments. Another thing is that he uses the exact same fallacious inductive reasoning that he accuses his opponents of, of using. For instance... He argues that because no one, including himself, has ever observed one species transmutate into another, a la Darwinism, then therefore it's not possible for this to happen. This is the fallacy of induction. It's, it's invalid. It, does, it doesn't necess, necessarily fa follow premises to the conclusion, which atheists and the scientific method is based upon. In a classic po post-hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, or after this, therefore because of this. So, to explain that, this is the one that a lot of people use as well, either consciously or unconsciously. A lot of people don't even know that this is a fallacy, but um, 
the post hoc ergo propter hoc or false cause fallacy is a real popular one. So to give to explain, just because event A precedes event B, that does not mean that event A caused event B. Okay. So to further explain this, I'm going to have to look at another note here. Okay. So I could read this note that I have. It says, quote, the popular, quote, cosmological argument for God's existence from first causes is garbage. It's an invalid argument. Just because from your limited experience you've never seen things coming into existence without a cause doesn't mean they can't. Night follows day, but night is not caused by day. Likewise, B follows A, but it's not necessarily caused by A. Proving causation with total certainty is not possible. This is philosophy 101, but unfortunately people like William Lane Craig and other popular apologists don't get it. Okay, so basically David Hume, the famous atheist logician, he, he proved this, that it's impossible to prove any kind of causation because all it all commits the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Just because event B followed event A, that doesn't mean that A was the cause of B. You never observe a third party or a causal link between the two events. You only observe the secondary event following the first event. That doesn't mean the first event caused the second the second event, you see? Um, and that's a huge problem. That basically collapses all of secular philosophy, that just collapses all of it right there. That collapses the entire scientific method. You, you can just collapse all of it right there because it all commits that fallacy. If you, you can never establish any kind of causation outside of revelation. It's impossible because it all falls under that fallacy. For instance, uh, and I've used this one before, just because I drop my pen and it falls to the ground, does that mean that Gravity was the force that made that fall to the ground? No, that doesn't necessarily follow. There could have been an infinite number of reasons for why that pin fell to the ground, an infinite number of causes. How would I know that gravity was the cause? Out of It'd be one, one possibility out of an infinite number. <laughs> As a fraction, reduces to 0%, so I can't even... I can't even make any claim of probability there either because it's one over infinity reduced to zero. It's one over an infinite number of possibilities. So you can't even say with any kind of probability what the cause was of any event either because there's an infinite number of possible causes. So you can just collapse all secular philosophy just collapses right there. But that's, again, that's what Chris Kendall was doing. He's saying... Just because we've never observed, or he's never observed, one animal turn into another, a la Darwinism, or one species turn into another species, then therefore it can't be possible. Well, how does he know that? How does he know that? 
night follows day, but day is not the cause of night. Okay? <laughs> Just because event A precedes event B, that doesn't mean event A necessarily caused event B. Okay? Just because no one's ever observed one animal turn into another animal, that doesn't mean it can't ever happen. See that? So, you have no way of knowing that. He has no way of knowing that outside of a circular inductive argument. It just totally collapses in upon itself. He's also committing just the common fallacy of induction. You know, all in, all inductive reasoning just is is formally fallacious. It all commits to the affirming the consequent fallacy, which is a formal fallacy, and it all just collapses in upon itself logically. It's it's all invalid because the conclusion is never necessitated from the premises. You're always going from a particular to a an absolute or a universal, which is fallacious, you know, it's never necessitated. It's an unwarranted inference because you can never establish a universal or an absolute from a particular. Again, so Chris Kendall's argument, he says, well, just because we've never observed or I've never observed, you know, one animal change, one species change into another species, like in, in, in a la Darwinism, therefore it can't happen. Oh, so just from your limited experience, your particular experience, you've never seen animals, you know, changing into other animals. That that means they can't. Oh, okay, that's because that's valid, right? That necessarily follows, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> Again, night follows day, but night is not caused by day. Likewise, B follows A, but it's not necessarily caused by A. Proving causation with total certainty is not possible. All commits the post hoc ergo propter hoc. After this, therefore because of this, fallacy. David Hume proved that proving causation with any certainty is impossible. Because we, we only ever observe event A or event B following event A. Okay? We never observe a third party or causal link between the two. See that? Completely invalid and fallacious. Okay, I'm looking through my notes here. Sorry, guys. Let's see. So 
something else I wanted to say on that. I'm just trying to find it. And one way that people try to defend any kind of causation or being able to prove any kind of causation, like, for instance, if I drop a ball, I assume it will bounce, right? It's going to bounce if I drop it. That'd be an assumption, see? You'd be assuming that the, the same causes produce the same effects in all situations would be the assumption that you're making there. But that's the very thing under question. Yeah. So it's a begging the question fallacy. You're assuming your own point to be proved. You're arguing in a circle. <laughs> you see? It's just like Chris Kendall. He assumes that just because we've seen all, all throughout history, and he's seen all in his experience, that, animal, that one species has never changed into another species, a la Darwinism, therefore it, it'll always be that way. Therefore, it will never be able to happen. Therefore, it's impossible. See that? He's begging the question. It's a begging the question fallacy. He's arguing in a circle. Completely invalid and fallacious. He's using the exact same fallacious inductive reasoning that he's arguing with all these flat earthers on his call and accusing them of making. He's making all this exact same fallacies. If not worse, because he's actually being inconsistent because he supposedly believes the Bible, yet he's arguing that the earth is a sphere. How exactly does he work that one? Oh, yeah, he doesn't use the Bible at all. Oh, that's why. Because his philosophy isn't based on the Bible. It's based on his own reason and his own sensation, which I'm proving just reduces to the arbitrary and the circular. Completely untenable and inconsistent and unjustifiable collapses in upon itself. Because it's impossible for man to gain or acquire knowledge outside of revelation. It's impossible. And I'm proving it. I'll continue to prove it. And he can come on my call and we can have a little chat if he wants. I mean, I've emailed him, but for some reason he never responded, which I find quite interesting because uh, I know that he uh, reads his... Uh, listeners' emails, because I've heard him say it on his call, so I'm kind of I'm a little bit uh, intrigued as to why I haven't got a response there, so maybe I'll have to email him this call, and then I'll see. Maybe that'll get him more motivated. Come on and chat with me. So let's see. Uh, what else do I want to say about Mr. Kendall? Let's see. <clears throat> what other... What other one of his uh, laughable little arguments here do I want to demolish? Okay, um, no, I say, so I say, uh, now, if he were to say that because the Bible says that God created everything to reproduce after its own kind, then therefore he could validly deduce from that that Darwinism would, you know, ipso facto or de facto be impossible, which would actually be a valid argument because his basis would be revelation. So it'd be consistent, it'd be, a, it'd be justified circularity, because his, uh, you know, his justification or his basis for his first premise or his axioms would be God, or God's revelation instead of himself. 
So it would be justified circularity as opposed to unjustified. It would be a consistent, it'd be coherent, and it'd be valid as well, because that would necessarily follow that that would have to be the case. But he doesn't he doesn't use that kind of reasoning. His basis for his arguments is himself. It's not God. It's not revelation from God, and it's certainly not the Bible. It's himself. See? The classic enlightenment position that man man can be his own authority and he can uh he's his own standard and he can he can acquire knowledge apart from revelation and he can justify it but with himself. Hmm, can is that is that true? Hmm, let's see. Let's keep hashing this out and see if that's the case. <laughs> so Oh, he also commits the uh fallacy of ig or the appeal to ignorance. This is another fallacy he commits by trying to say that oh, well just because we've never observed I've never observed uh one species turning into another species a la Darwinism, therefore it can't happen or it's impossible, right? That's the it's an appeal to ignorance fallacy. Just be it comes in two forms. Just because something's never been proven false, therefore it's true, or the way he's using it. Just because something's never been proven true, therefore it's false. It's invalid. It's a fallacy. It's what you're using. <clears throat> he's also arguing from silence as well. He's committing an argument from silence fallacy. He's drawing a conclusion about something when the uh, opponent is refusing to give evidence for for any reason. Or he's drawing a conclusion when there isn't evidence. You know, arguing from silence. Kind of like how he also tries to argue that, oh, well, flat earthers can't answer all my objections. Like, Jaron won't address the plane flights, therefore the flat earth theory is a psyop. Therefore it's not true, right? That's that's a, it's an appeal to ignorance. It's an argument from silence there. It's a fallacy. Just because the opponent isn't giving you evidence or isn't answering your objections, that doesn't mean that their uh, their position is false. That doesn't necessarily follow there, bud. Hate to say, hate to break it to you, buddy. You really haven't studied logic like you think you have, man. And if you, if you think you have, then come on my call and let's let's talk and let's see. Let's let's hash this out and let's see. Let's talk it out, bud. <clears throat> So, another thing is he would appeal to his sensation often in this call. You'll you'll notice, in order to argue, like for instance, when he uh, he he's, he makes his argument that the moon is a sphere, well, his basis for that is his sensation. He'll say, "Oh, well, because it looks like a sphere to me." You see that because it has. I see. I, I observe that it has contours, and it the shadows make it. It appears to be a sphere to me. So, therefore, it must be a sphere, right? Because, because 
I can trust my senses, right? Because of what I observe, right? Even though that's not circular at all, right? Oh, okay. The, the only thing that Chris Kindle demonstrated in this call is the absolute failure of the Enlightenment and the complete inability of man to acquire knowledge apart from revelation, to acquire knowledge from his senses or his reason or anything. It's the only thing he demonstrated with this, this whole argument that he had on this call. Because the flat earther that he was arguing against, that she, Lynn, that lady, she was saying, oh, well, when I look at the moon, all I see is a two-dimensional object. That's all that, that my observations tell me or my sensation tells me. So which one's right? So how can how can we derive sense, your truth from sensation? Everybody's sensation is different. Everybody has different sensations. Everybody draw, draws different conclusions and different images and different... Everybody has different observations and all sensation is subjective. So how can we get any truth at all from sensation? Like Chris Kendall's trying to argue. Can someone explain this to me? How can we? All, all observations and all sensation presupposes and it requires an interpretation, which is all subjective. So who's got the right interpretation for their senses, for what they're observing? Which interpretation is right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just a joke. <laughs> the only way to know which interpretation is right is to get revelation from God. Otherwise, it's just this guy's interpretation versus this other guy's interpretation. Otherwise, it's just this manifold, you know, this multitude of different interpretations with no way to know which one's right outside of an arbitrary one, you know? Well, just because I say so, or just because I want mine to be right, therefore it's right, or just because... Or, or the might is right thing, just because I have a gun and I'm going to shoot you if you don't accept my interpretation... So I'm going to establish mine by force, right? It's often what these come down to. It's all just circular. It all just comes down to circular justifications, are completely arbitrary. Again, so I say another thing is he would appeal to his sensation in order to argue that the moon was or is a sphere but his opponents were just as easily doing the same to argue that it was a disk or some other two-dimensional object, or even possibly a hologram. All of which only proves that sensation is unable to prove anything due to all such needing interpretation, and thus the infinite variation in the inherent fallacious nature of induction. Whereas only deduction from revealed axioms can can prove you know can prove anything, and the Bible doesn't tell us what the moon is. God's never revealed to us what shape the moon is, so there's no way for us to know. It just comes down to subjective interpretation and subjective sensations. And oh well, I'm Chris Kendall, and I mean it looks like a sphere to me, so it must be a sphere, right? 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 Because that's. Because that's somehow a valid argument, and and when flat earthers say, "Oh, well, based on my sensation, it looks like a disc," that's somehow invalid, right? Even though we're both using the exact same standard, our sensation and our observations, but somehow mine 
are correct because they're mine and these other people's are wrong because they're theirs. Even though all sensation and observation is uh, subjective, which is all I'm proving here, yet somehow we can derive objective truth from subjective sensation because that follows, right? Hmm, okay. The only way you can ever derive truth from sensation is if you already have... If, if you're already deducing from the correct a priori uh, axioms or propositions. Basically, God has to reveal to you what the correct interpretation is, and then you, your observations would have to align with that interpretation for you to derive truth from your senses. It's the only way. <laughs> You can't just derive truth from your senses just on the basis of your senses because it all reduces to the circular and the arbitrary, collapses in upon itself. See? And really the only thing that people use, have to... really what it comes down to for them to use to try to get out of this is people have to assume that everyone ha has the... everyone in the world has the exact same sensations as them. See, they have to which is called solipsism. That's what it reduces to. They have to assume solipsism. They have to assume that their sensations are the same as everyone else's. Even though as we, even though if you listen from Chris Kendall's call, that's definitely not the case. He proves that that's absolutely not the case, doesn't he? That's all he proves, is that everyone has different sensations and everyone draws different conclusions from their sensations and there's no way to drive any true, any objective truth from sensation at all because it's all reduces to the subjective and arbitrary, and solipsism collapses upon itself. Plus, it doesn't escape the charge of being circular or arbitrary either. And how would you even ever establish that everyone has the same sensations as you or experiences the same sensations as you? even though that's flatly contradicted by just your everyday experience and Chris Kendall's call and everything. But how would you ever even establish that without just assuming it, you know, in a circular, arbitrary way? You couldn't... You would have to have absolute or universal knowledge, you know, which can only be derived from God because we don't have... As finite mortals, we don't have absolute or universal knowledge, so we could never establish a universal or an absolute from ourselves unless it was revealed to us and we deduced from that revelation. It's the only way you could do it validly. So, again, in response to the claim that the moon could potentially be a hologram, he, he doesn't like that at all. He gets real mad at that, which I have no idea why. But he would argue from incredulity. He would, uh, this is the fallacy of incredulity. And be like, well, that's akin to giving up my senses or not trusting my senses. So I, I just, that can't be true, right? See? Like, I just can't imagine that being true because uh, that would be, I would have to just, not trust my senses, or you see that? So it all just again, it just reduces to a circular argument. Why do you trust your senses, Mr. Kendall? 
Oh, because of what you observe? That's why you trust your senses? Oh, really? Okay, so it's a big circular argument then. How do you know that everything isn't a hologram or an illusion, Mr. Kendall? How do you know that? How do you know that all your senses aren't lying to you or aren't a lie or aren't an illusion? How do you know? You, you can't know. You can't justify your senses without appealing to your senses. You, you can give no justification that's not circular. You, you cannot. You have no way of knowing that your senses are even reliable without appealing to your senses. So you just collapse your whole argument in upon itself. Just because you can't imagine the moon being a hologram, that doesn't mean it's not a hologram. It doesn't matter if, if that... Uh, I'm sorry that makes you feel bad, and that and that makes you give up your arbitrary, circular trust in your senses. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's laughable. So, uh, I could read something here on that. Um, so this is a little, uh, conversation that I wrote down here. It says, uh, oh, hold on, I need to plug in my phone, guys, it's gonna die. Let me do that, and then I'll read this. Okay, so it says, <laughs> what if I told you that without God you can't know anything? Response, I'd ask you how you know that. Answer, without God we cannot account for an abstract concept that must be both true and justified like knowledge. Because the concept of knowledge itself presupposes an absolute or an objective standard. You know, it presupposes that there's absolute or objective truth, which is would be a, necess a necessity for there to be knowledge, be a necessary prerequisite requirement. And it also presupposes the laws of logic, you know, the three basic laws, like, again, the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, and the law of non-contradiction. Obviously, contradictions could not be possible for there to be knowledge. See that if contradictions were possible, and if a if a could be not a at the same time, if a proposition could be both true and not true at the same time, knowledge would be impossible, just de facto, right off the bat. I mean, if if anything, if if a can be not a at the same time, you can't know anything. Any epistemology is impossible because absurdity would be possible. See that things could be both true and not true. The very, the very statement, the very statement that knowledge would be impossible would be both true and not true at the same time. You see that? So it would just reduce to complete absurdity. You see? So you you have to presuppose these absolutes, these abstract absolutes like the laws of logic for there to be knowledge, for knowledge to be possible. Without God, we cannot account for an abstract concept that must be both true and justified like knowledge. Could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? Response. How do you know that without God you cannot account 
for an abstract concept that must be both true and justified like knowledge. You have created a circular argument with no escape from infinite regression. And there is only one answer to your question, because in saying, yes, I could be wrong about everything I claim to know, means that I could be wrong about that statement. Correct, yeah, because you'd have to presuppose the law of non-contradiction, but if you're an atheist, how do you account for such a law? Well, you can't. (laughs) And then, yeah, so here's the response. It's not circular at all. Fear in the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And those who do not fear the Lord cannot have knowledge. Knowledge presupposes truth. Truth presupposes God. You cannot have knowledge unless you start with God. You say there is only one answer to my question, yet you never gave it. Could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? Also, even if my argument were circular... Why would that be wrong according to your worldview? <laughs> you see? Cuz an atheist would have to an a, he's he's presupposing that there's this objective standard of of uh by which to measure you know invalidity or circularity or wrongness. <laughs> he's presupposing these absolute laws of logic. Well well, that completely contradicts his whole atheist position. You can't even account for an a- any kind of absolutes, let alone an abstract absolute concept like the laws of logic that are invariant, immaterial, immutable. How can an arbitrary, constantly changing, constantly mutable universe produce an abstract, invariant, objective, immutable abstract concept. It's impossible. You you can never justify such a thing in that worldview. It's completely fallacious. You can never account for such a thing. You can never derive anything like that out of that worldview. So it says that God exists by way of impossibility of the contrary and reductio ad absurdum, a reduction to the absurd. All other positions reducing to the absurd. The absurdity of denying God, premise one. If you deny God, you can't know that everything isn't an illusion. Premise two. If you don't know that everything isn't an illusion, then you don't know anything. Conclusion. Without God, you can't know anything. Yep. That's, yeah. So again, it says, I know my reasoning is valid because I check the validity of my reasoning using my reasoning. Therefore, rinse and repeat. Without God, you have no escape from the vicious circle of using your reasoning to reason that your reasoning is valid. Or using your reasoning to justify your reason. As an atheist, quote, as an atheist, I do not always use reasoning. But when I do, I reason that my reasoning is reasonable enough to reason with, end quote. (laughs) <laughs> the reason I'm uh, saying all this is I know that Chris Kendall isn't an atheist, but it's still analogous because he's using all these same arguments. He, he's he's relying on his reason. He's relying on his sensation. He used those all throughout that call, but he gives no justification for his reason or his sensation outside of themselves. He just says, oh, well, just because I, I, I just the moon looks like a sphere to me, 
because I trust my senses, so therefore it must be a sphere, right? Well, how do you know that your senses are reliable? Why do you trust your senses? Because of what because of what you sense? You, you, you trust your observations because of what you observe? That's a circular argument, sir. You have to have some sort of objective standard or justification outside of your senses that would justify your senses. He never he never gave one. <laughs> he has failed, he still has yet to give one. God is the only justification for the axioms which are abstract, a priori, or before the evidence, and universal by which to argue with. Without him, all arguments inevitably collapse into an infinite regress and thus arbitrary circularity. If atheists think that science is the only way to determine truth, then how do they determine that science itself is true? <laughs> it's a circular argument. <laughs> think Christianity is insane? Insanity presupposes a standard of normality from which to deviate. Without God, how do you know what normal is? How do you know you aren't insane? Yeah. So. Here's another note I can read here. One cannot know anything at all with certainty because there could be something outside of what one thinks they know that could contradict what they think they know. Again, could you be wrong about everything you claim to know? Therefore, the only way one could know anything at all with certainty is to be either omniscient themselves or all-knowing or get revelation from someone who is omniscient or all-knowing. This is proof See, there's people out there that claim that you can't prove God, prove God. The very concept of proof presupposes and necessitates God. You can't account for or justify the very concept of proof itself unless there was a God who revealed that concept to you and who can account for it and justify it, okay? The very concept of proof is an absolute, it's a universal, it's a... It's objective, it's intangible, it's immaterial, it's a product of mind, it's intelligible. God is the only justification for that very concept. He's the only thing that could even give such a concept meaning. That is just that's that's a question that statement itself is just retarded. It is it's self contradict self defeating. The very concept of a proof is proof of God. So I said, this is proof of God by way of reductio ad absurdum, or reduction to the absurd, all other positions reducing to the absurd and making knowledge impossible, and impossibility of the contrary, all other positions making knowledge possible being impossible. So yeah. So, to get back... To take that back to uh, Chris Kendall, 
points that he was making, his arguments. So again, back to his uh, his defense of, of of the moon not being a hologram, possibly, just because uh, his senses tell him that that can't be the case, because he trusts his senses. Well, I, because because his because of what he senses, because that's not circular at all, right? Well, Mr. Kendall, how do you know your senses are reliable outside of your own senses? And thus a reduction to the circular and arbitrary. What standard do you do you appeal to? What objective objective standard do you appeal to out of your outside of your senses that you use to prove your senses and that you can measure against to know that your senses are reliable? Because the only thing you prove with your call is that everybody has different sensations. So solipsism is not true. Everybody doesn't have the same sensations, and it's impossible to derive any kind of truth out of sensation because it's all subjective. So. That's the only thing you demonstrated with your call. So for you to use sensation as the basis for your argument that the moon is a sphere and couldn't possibly be any of these other possibilities is completely invalid and inconsistent and hypocritical and circular and arbitrary. So, sorry. It's just there. the moon being a sphere is just one possibility out of an infinite number of possibilities. You got one over infinity there, bud, which reduces to zero as a, as a fraction. One over infinity reduces to zero. So you can't even know if, that's, if, if the moon being a sphere is even more probable than any of these other possibilities because you can't establish any probability because it, zero percent is... Every every possibility reduces to zero percent because it's one over infinity. There's an infinite number of possibilities. There's an infinite number of sensations because everybody has a different sensation of what the moon is. Everybody has a different interpretation. So which interpretation is correct, Mr. Kendall? And how do you know outside of your senses? And your reason, which are both arbitrary, how, how do you determine which interpretation is correct? Mm, I'd really like to know, man. You should come on the call and enlighten me, bud. I'm waiting for you, buddy. Come on. So let's see. I'll have to send you another email and then uh, with this call in there and have you listen to it. And then you can come on and uh, enlighten us. So... Uh, <laughs> Another laughable argument that he used is, uh, if the moon is a sphere, then we should observe other objects analogous to spheres in nature. That was uh, another another re a reason that he would reject the moon not being a sphere, is because we don't observe objects that are analogous, like like the Earth possibly being a two-dimensional disk. He's like, oh. Well, do we observe any other anything else like that in nature that's analogous to that? So therefore, it must be a sphere, because that's valid logic, all right? That necessarily follows. That's actually uh, an affirming the consequent fallacy. If A, then B, B, therefore A. It's a formal fallacy. So let me uh, tell you. Let me give it to you right here. If the if the moon is a sphere, then we should observe other objects analogous to spheres in nature. 
We do observe other objects analogous to spheres in nature. Therefore, the Earth is a sphere. It's a classic formal fallacy, the fallacy of affirming the consequent. That's not necessitated at all. Just because we observe objects that are analogous to spheres in nature, that has absolutely no bearing whatsoever and doesn't necessitate whatsoever and doesn't mean that the moon is a sphere. That doesn't follow, necessarily. That's not. That's invalid. does not follow. Sorry. Nice try, though. Good. That was a good, it's a good college effort there. It's a good try. So, let's see. Oh, so another way that he demonstrated that it's impossible to prove any kind of causation. So, uh, they were arguing, he argues a lot about these buildings that are seen at at impossible distances on a sphere, but yet the, the bottoms are cut off. And, you know, flat earthers have made videos and made very convincing arguments that this is because of atmospheric lensing, which Chris Kendall has a real problem with, again, on a completely arbitrary basis. But um, So the only thing that he proves here is that it's impossible to prove causation without revelation. Because buildings seen far away, yet with their bottoms cut off, you know, the flat earthers will say, well, that's because of atmospheric lensing. Whereas Chris Kendall will say, oh, that's because of the curve. <laughs> you see this? Which one's right? How do we know? <laughs> I mean, it's, again, all he demonstrates with his call is that it's impossible to establish any kind of causation objectively because it's all just subjective interpretation. Everybody's got their own interpretation of, of possible causes because again we only observe event A event B following event A we never observe the causal link between the two doesn't mean A caused B there's an infinite number of possible causes it's impossible to determine subjectively it's the same with gravity see a flat earther will say that gravity is density or buoyancy. You see that? That's why objects fall, and that's why objects raise. Yet, Chris Kendall, he has a big problem with that on this call, too. He's like, well, there's some kind of force behind this. You see, so he's arguing for gravity, you see. Well, which one's correct? See that? Well, how do we know? Again, it's the impossibility, it's the impossibility for man to gain or acquire any kind of knowledge using himself as a standard, any kind of knowledge whatsoever without revelation. It's impossible. Because it all falls under the same fallacies. It's all, indu- all induction is formally fallacious. It's impossible to gain any kind of knowledge from it whatsoever. It all just reduces to the subjective and the arbitrary, and there's infinite variation. There's infinite possibilities. So it's even impossible to establish any kind of probability because it's you you have one possibility over an infinite number which reduces to 0% as a fraction so 
It's just your interpretation versus an infinite number of other interpretations. It's just your sensation versus an infinite number of other sensations. It's your subjective experience versus an infinite number of other subjective experiences. Wow. Mr. Kendall, wow. Man, you got your work cut out for you, man. You got your work cut out for you. Since the revelation in the Bible isn't the standard for your epistemology, you're, you're in the same boat as everybody else. Your whole platform just reduces to the arbitrary and the unjustified and the circular. Sorry. And the invalid, the fallacious. I'm sorry. And unfortunately, uh, deduction... You can't have validity with deduction, but unfortunately, deduction can only deduce from axioms, which are a priori. They come before the evidence or all the facts. And, you know, you can only deduce from axioms and verify coherency. That's all that deduction does. Um, so unless you can account for or justify those first axioms, or those base premises or presuppositions, those postulates or abstract propositions which precede, you know, your deduction, unless you can account for those, then, again, your whole argument just reduces to the arbitrary, even if it is valid, because you have no justification for that first premise. How do you know your first premise is true? How do you know your axioms are true? Oh, I just assume they're true in order to proceed with my argument and deduce and make this valid argument. Well, sorry, that doesn't that doesn't get you out of the charge of it being arbitrary. That doesn't you you can't avoid that. That doesn't get you out of it. Doesn't make you escape from it. It still reduces to the arbitrary. So I think I sufficiently uh collapsed all of Chris Kendall's arguments on that call and hopefully uh, he'll listen to this and respond at least at the very least so uh, I can read a little something to further illustrate the impossibility of man to acquire any kind of knowledge or justify any kind of knowledge without it being circular and arbitrary outside of a revelation from God and deduction therefrom, from his revealed axioms and propositions, postulates. So, let me read this. So this is from uh, one of Drake Shelton, or Southern Israelite, as he's known on YouTube. This is one of his books. It's called, uh, Thomas Jefferson is Wrong, Was Wrong, A Complete Refutation of the Enlightenment. So this is chapter 3. It says, a diatribe against the Enlightenment and the so-called American Founding Fathers. So, I'm going to begin. It says, so many works exist now at the fingertips of the Western world which have endeavored to defend the Bible and its divinity against the hordes of modern atheism. What this work is intended to do is to approach the atheist hordes from a much subtler angle. With this approach, I have received a much more devastated reaction from the atheists I have spoken with. The approach is simple. 
let us assume for the time being that I have no proof of the existence of God and that the text of the Bible is riddled with so many problems that a human being could never discover the truth from its pages. What then have the atheist hordes put in its place? The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy states in its article on the Enlightenment, quote, According to, the, to a common Enlightenment assumption, as humankind clarifies the laws of nature through the advance of natural science and philosophy, the true moral and political order will be revealed with it. This view is expressed explicitly by the philosopher Marquis de Condorcet in his sketch for a historical picture of the progress of the human mind, published posthumously in 1795, and which, perhaps better than any other work, lays out the paradigmatically enlightenment view of history of the human race as a continual progress to perfection. This is the great hope of the atheist hordes. With the dominance of political equality, individual liberty, and the development of the natural sciences, man, who is basically good in nature, but shackled to an ancient immoral slavery, will enter into a utopia of perfection once the shackles of the ancient immorality are broken. If the effects of these ideas had not had the disastrous effects they have had on my life and the life of all the people that I have known, and millions of others I have not, I might burst out into convulsions of laughter. However, seeing the state of the world as it is today, the most egregious form of slavery, human trafficking, a global enterprise born out of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the destruction of the family as 70% of men aged 20 to 34 are not married, the complete apathy and nihilism of the common man who finds his truest happiness and fulfillment in life in sports and games, the massive gap between the rich and the poor, the exact problem the Enlightenment promised it would solve, the holocaust of aborted children in this country, upwards of now 55 million children in this country alone, the ceaseless class warfare and racial conflicts, results of the pluralism of the Enlightenment and its inherent identity crises, the genocide of the Western white man who has embraced these atheist ideas the most, and that comes from the United Nations World Fertility Report of 2013 states, quote, the highest rates of childlessness are currently in European and Eastern Asian low fertility countries, with Singapore having the highest level of childlessness, 23% of women aged 40 to 44 years. Then, this is another source that says, Gretchen Livingston and Devera Cohn of the Pew Research Center state in their article, childlessness up among all women, down among women with advanced degrees. Quote, the most educated women still are among the most likely never to have had a child. But in a notable exception to the overall rising trend, in 2008, 24% of women ages 40, 40 through 44 with a master's, doctoral, or professional degree had not had children, a decline from 31% in 1994. By race and ethnic group, white women are most likely not to have born a child, end quote. According to the Census Bureau, Bureau data, quote, for the first time in more than a century, deaths 
outpaced verse among white Americans, end quote. And continuing, quote, the Census Bureau reported that multiracial Americans were the fastest growing racial group last year, end quote. Quote, white share of U.S. population drops to historic low, end quote, Bloomberg. A Huffington Post 2013 article, quote, Latino population booms in the South, Pew, quote, states, the Latino population is booming across the United States and nowhere more so than in the South. All but one of the top ten states with the fastest growing Hispanic populations from 2000 to 2011 were located in the South. End quote. The military government of the United States, a hallmark to the failure of a liberal democracy to stay the power of despots, the 120 million plus deaths under atheist regimes in the past century alone, that's from uh, R.J. Rummel, Statistics of Democide, the economic, social, and environmental disaster of the Industrial Revolution, the international scandal of the humanist modern banking industry with its juris justification of usury. And last but not least, the paradoxical success and continued rise to power of the Roman Catholic Church in the modern world. I must protest. Perfection? The results of the Enlightenment having at its disposal the richest treasuries and the mightiest armies the world has ever seen thus fully equipped to meet its proposed ends, are the exact opposite of perfection. What we are seeing come to pass can be viewed in the recent movie, Idiocracy. This is the liberation of fallen man, absolute chaos, a new dark age. Now to introduce the reader to the most reduced-down basic problems of Enlightenment philosophy. A list of atheist and liberal logical fallacies. Ad hominem. Drake is a crazy racist. Don't listen to his arguments. In other words, I don't like how Drake's arguments make me feel. Therefore, Drake is insane. Accident fallacy. Killing another human being is a crime. Therefore, war and capital punishment are a crime. Unless, of course, the war is against southern white Protestants. Affirming the consequent fallacy. If Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, we should observe homology. We do observe homology. Therefore, Darwin's theory is true. If the Earth is moving, there will be a bulge at the equator. There is a bulge at the equator. Therefore, the Earth is moving. If the Big Bang theory is true, objects will explode when under pressure. The atom exploded when under pressure. Therefore, the Big Bang Theory is true. Anecdotal fallacy. My black grandmother told me she was raped by a white southerner. Therefore, southern slaveholders systematically raped their slaves and created stud plantations. Appeal to authority. Creationism is wrong because the professional scientists reject it. Geocentrism is wrong because the professional physicists reject it. Drake is not a scientist, therefore his quotations of scientists are quote-mining. Appeal to consequences. Science is true, because even if there are logical fallacies at the root of all science, people still need it. That's another one that Chris Kindle uh, committed when he tried to say that, oh, well, if I uh, entertain the notion that the moon might possibly be a hologram, then therefore I, I just can't trust my senses anymore. 
Lesson appeal the consequences fallacy. It's you see he's basically saying, I, I don't like the consequences of of this possibility or this possibly being true, so therefore it can't be true, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. That's 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 valid there, huh? Appeal to fear. If creationism is broadly accepted, we will lose the business of future inter- investors. Appeal to force. The South was conquered, therefore it was wrong. Appeal to motive. Heliocentrism is true because it appeals to our motive of humility. Geocentrism is false because it appeals to man's motive of, motive of pride. Appeal to novelty. The scientific revolution is true because it is modern. Appeal to popularity. Everyone believes in heliocentrism, therefore it is true. Appeal to probability. The slavery institution can be absurd, abused, therefore all slavery is abuse. Appeal to pity. White Southerners should accept their own genocide and ethnic displacement to make up for their legacy of slavery and racism. Appeal to ridicule. Creationism is for fools. Appeal to spite. Slavery and racial preservation is wrong because Southern people are uneducated rednecks who deserve to be annihilated for their legacy of racism. Appeal to tradition. Heliocentrism is true because it has been the hallmark of the scientific revolution for centuries. (laughs) Appeal to wealth. Drake Shelton is wrong because his ideas have not produced a wealthy lifestyle. Argument from fallacy. Creationists use arguments that contradict the laws of physics while adhering to the laws of physics. Therefore, there was no creation. Argument from ignorance. Southern slaveholders systematically raped their slaves and created stud plantations. You can't prove it wrong. Therefore, it happened. Argument from personal incredulity. I cannot imagine that the earth is fixed and in the center of the universe. Or I I can't imagine that the earth is flat. Therefore, heliocentrism is true. Argument from repetition. American black men are victims of institutional racism. Argument from silence. The Bible stories were based on pagan myths. Argument to moderation. The traditional account of the Roman Catholic Inquisition gives white Protestants a claim to being an oppressed group of people in the history of mankind. Though we must condemn the Catholic Church for the Inquisition, the number of white Protestants murdered and tortured by the Catholic Church must be much less than traditionally stated. Begging the question, or arguing in a circle, the earth is spinning and orbiting the sun, therefore the bulge in the middle of the earth must be a result of this spinning. Cherry-picking. Darwin denoted races as the objects that evolve, but I reject the reality of races. But Darwinism is still true. Confirmation bias. I want to be an atheist who believes in metaphysical naturalism. Therefore, I am going to ignore the many works by reputable academicians that show the problems in metaphysical naturalism. Circular reasoning. The way to identify a numeric substance is to determine its spatio-temporal location, and the way to identify a spatio-temporal location is to determine its numeric substance. Correlation does not imply causation, or post-hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. When you drop a rock, it will fall to the earth, and the cause is gravity. Continuum fallacy. If abortion is outlawed, some abortions will still take place. Therefore, abortion should be legal. It's also called the fallacy of degrees. 
Distinction without a difference. It is immoral to own another human being as property, but I am not a communist. Children belong to their parents. Double standard. All the people groups of the world have a right to maintain their identity except white Protestants. All the ancient books of mankind should be trusted, even if they have few manuscript witnesses and some variation in their readings, except for the Bible, which has thousands of manuscript witnesses. The Bible's manuscripts in Christian theology have some mistakes in them. Therefore, the metaphysical naturalist position, which contains more problems and mistakes, must be accepted because I want it that way. Equivocation. John is a racist because he loves his own people more than other people's. Fallacy of composition. Some government officials have access to drones and nuclear warheads. Therefore, the purpose of the Second Amendment is no longer relevant to today. Fallacy of division. Some white Americans kill Native Americans unprovoked. Therefore, all white Americans are guilty of Native American genocide. False analogy. Drake Shelton wants to preserve the ethnic and cultural identity of his people. Therefore, he is just like the Nazis. False attribution. Abolitionists stated that southern slaveholders bred their slaves on stud plantations. False authority. Harriet Beecher Stowe, a woman who never experienced a southern plantation, is a reliable authority of the lives of southern slaves. False dilemma, or a false dichotomy. If the earth is moving, the stars should appear to shift, and they do. Thus, there is only one alternative to Ptolemy, namely heliocentrism. False equivalence. Blacks, whites, Asians, men, women, and children are all human. Thus, they are all equal. Genetic fallacy. Heliocentrism is true because it came out of the Enlightenment. Diversity is good because it came out of the Civil Rights era. Furtive fallacy. We have found that southern plantation owners beget mulatto children. Therefore, the plantation owner must have raped one of his slaves. Ignoratio Elenki, you're missing the point. I don't believe in the absolute standard of right and wrong, but owning another human being as property is absolutely immoral. Kettle logic. One, evolution and human progress towards a specific goal we have in mind is our purpose. Two, the universe is eternal and was never created with any kind of goal or reason and purpose. Loaded question. Are you for racial discrimination? Assuming that discrimination is an immoral thing. Moral high ground. I don't have to listen or validly respond to the arguments of Greg Shelton because he is a racist. Moralistic fallacy. Slavery is degrading to the human psyche, therefore it must not exist. Moving the goalposts. The war crimes and genocide of over 120 million people who are victims of atheist regimes should be ignored, and only the crimes of religious people should be considered because we must demand more of them. Naturalistic fallacy. Human civilizations are inherently evil, but they ought to exist. Onus probandi, or shifting the burden of proof. Drake Shelton's criticisms of heliocentrism are false because he cannot fully explain every aspect of geocentrism. Overwhelming exception. The racial, economic, social, and environmental policies of the South have shown to be superior to the northern industrial system, but the South was wrong because it viewed black and white people as unequal. 
post hoc or go propter hoc, or after this, therefore because of this. A given observation agrees with the antecedent hypothesis, therefore the observation was caused by the by the hypothesis. Proof by intimidation. Heliocentrism is true, no matter how confusing my explanation is, why east-west plane flights take the same amount of time. It doesn't matter that I cannot explain to you what I mean by saying clouds are attached to the earth. You are too uneducated to ever understand. Proving too much. Slavery is evil because it requires physical discipline, but then so does parenting a child. Therefore, parenthood is evil. Psychologist fallacy. A religious person I once knew hurt me. Therefore, religion is inherently evil. Red herring. Those who are complaining of white genocide should be ignored because white supremacists in the past have used this argument. Reification fallacy. Homosexuals should be tolerated because they are prisoners against their choice. It is not their fault that their soul was born into the wrong body. Shifting the burden of proof. Geocentrists must prove the Earth is not spinning and orbiting the sun. Straw man. Your view of science is a nirvana fallacy because you demand that science be perfect in order to be true. And so Drake says down here in a footnote, Exactly what I've been saying. My argument is not simply that science is not perfect, but that it is based on arbitrary logical fallacies and an infinite variation of measurements. <clears throat> and thus, the probability that it is true is denoted in the fraction 1 over infinity, which equals 0. Thought terminate, terminating cliché. American liberalism is communism? Drake, it is what it is. Two quoque, or U2 fallacy. Or also uh, uh, appeal to circumstance or motive. Drake Shelton, you say that all scientific laws are based on logical fallacies, but you use science. Vacuous truth. Professional scientists are Darwinists, not creationists. So what if scientists cannot be hired if they are open creationists? Wishful thinking. Diversity is the goal of a progressive society where peoples of different backgrounds can learn from each other and celebrate their differences. The fact that this system has only resulted in unending violence and hatred is irrelevant to our sublime vision. <laughs> so, toleration is the best policy because if left to the open air, truth will prevail if only the common man has the freedom to pursue the truth honestly and thoroughly. The fact that the vast majority of humanity is belligerent and utterly uninterested in truth is irrelevant to our sublime vision. Equality is the best policy because people are inherently good and equal in worth. The fact that people are cruel and selfish by nature and that worth and value are ambiguous terms that mean different things to different people is irrelevant to our sublime vision. So, when faced with these devastating fallacies, the modern atheist will simply throw up his hands and proclaim that he is completely comfortable being a total skeptic. But wait! The Enlightenment promised that through the use of man's reason, he could gain knowledge. That was the whole point of the Enlightenment. This is why this period is referred to as the Age of Reason. Jesuit-trained Descartes began with his attempt to gain knowledge without appealing to God or to religion with his, quote, I think, therefore I am, which is completely circular and arbitrary, by the way. 
I think, therefore I am, therefore I am because I think, right? Or I am because I think, therefore I think because I am. Okay. Completely circular. Thomas Paine, in his The Age of Reason, states in his introduction, quote, The most formidable weapon against errors of of every kind is reason. I have never used any other, and I trust I never shall. Quote, well, that presupposes an objective standard of reasonableness that you can measure your reason against. How do you know that you're reasoning correctly? How do you know that your reason is reasonable? And by what standard do you appeal to to determine if your reason is reasonable? See? Many modern atheists will feign in a disgusting and despicable false humility that they just don't know, and that and that is the platform of their moral superiority to religious people. Really? You don't know? You don't know that the Earth spins a, a thousand miles per hour at the equator and orbits the sun? You don't know that atoms exist? You don't know that the human race has evolved from a lower life form? You don't know that all men are created equal? You don't know that owning another person as property is inherently immoral? Are the laws of science up for debate? Can one be an atheist and be skeptical of the so-called laws of nature, empiricism, materialism, heliocentrism, or Darwinism? I have debated literally hundreds of atheists, and every one of them held to all of these doctrines as if they were written in stone. Could it be that their claims to ignorance is only a disgusting psychological manipulation to lay all burdens of proof on religious people, and through their proclaimed humility create a platform of moral superiority? If man can gain knowledge through the use of his own reason, what is this philosophy? I will now move through the ages of atheist history from the ancient world to recent times, ripping to shreds every last idea that has been used to defend this now international belligerence and show that man has failed to gain knowledge through the use of his own reason, and instead of perfecting mankind, the Enlightenment has resulted in another dark age of political despots, total social and moral breakdown, nihilism, widespread misery, and untold millions of human deaths and suffering. Section 1. Okay, so... What I want to read out of here is... this section that's relevant to our discussion. Heliocentrism philosophically failed. Quote, Our ancestors worshipped the sun, and they were far from foolish. It makes good sense to revere the sun and the stars, because we are their children. End quote. That's from Carl Sagan. In the Jesuit Enlightenment's counter-reformation attempts to draw our Protestant population away from the Bible and to revive the ancient pagan religions of our ancestors, They have given away so much that only the willfully ignorant are duped into believing the malicious lies foisted upon our people. As our population grows more pagan and atheistic, our government becomes increasingly Catholic. I maintain this is no accident, but has been carefully designed. Remember, the foundation of the Enlightenment was comprised of a connection between Jesuit-trained Descartes, skepticism, atomism, and Epicureanism. The Bible explicitly states that the earth does not move and never indicates in a single place that it moves or changes its position in the universe. 
Joshua 10, 12 through 13, 27, 1 Chronicles 16, 30, Job 26, 7, Psalm 93, 1, 96, 10, and 119, 90. The Bible explicitly states that the sun moves around the earth or above it. Genesis 15, 12, 17, 19, 23, 28, 11, 32, 31, Exodus 17, 12, 22, 23, 26, Leviticus 22.7, Numbers 2.3, Deuteronomy 11.30, 16, 6, 23.11, 24.13, 24.15, <clears throat> Joshua 1, 8.29, 12.1, Judges 5, 31, 8.13, 9.33, 14.18, 19.14, 2 Samuel 2.24, 3.35, 23.4, 1 Kings 22.36, 2 Chronicles 18.34, Job 9.7, Psalm 19, 4 through 6, 51, 104, 19, 22, 113, 3, Ecclesiastes 1, 5, Isaiah 13, 10, 38, 8, 41, 25, 45, 6, 59, 19, 60, 20, Jeremiah 15, 9, Daniel 6, 14, Amos 9, 8, 9, Jonah 4, 8, Micah 3, 6, Nahum, or Nahum 3, 17, Habakkuk, 311, Malachi 111, Matthew 545, 136, Mark 132, 46, 162, Luke 440, and Ephesians 426. The Roman Catholic, the Roman Church, and the Jesuit order know this. However, with the destruction of the Holy Roman Empire with the Protestant Reformation, the Jesuits knew they needed a weapon against the Reformation. Atheistic atomism, though baseless and already refuted. Sorry. No basis and already refuted by the pre-Socratics was the answer. Thus, the Jesuits knew they needed to jump on the Copernican bandwagon in order to develop this weapon. This weapon would then be perfected by their students Descartes and Galileo. Galileo, the great hero of heliocentrism, was supported by a famous Jesuit named Christopher Clavius. He was trained at the University of Pisa. Quote, it has been shown over the past two decades that Galileo's lecture notes from his days as a student at the University of Pisa had as their ultimate source the lectures of the mathematicians at the Collegio Romano. Okay, guys, I'm going to run and take a break real quick. I'll be right back. All right, sorry guys, I'm back. So, the Collegio Romano was established by the founder of the Jesuit order, Ignatius Loyola, and is known today as Pontifical Gregorian University. 
It may shock the reader to discover that the heliocentric theory which has turned the educated Western world against the Bible is not based on any clear demonstration of evidence, but is in fact just as ad hoc, arbitrary, and irrational as Christian theology is. Just as Christians appeal to the infinite nature of God in order to bypass any rational examination of their theology, Copernicus, in order to bypass any geocentric examination of his system, quote, transform the earth into a planet, humans into planetarians, and stars into suns, thereby infinitizing the universe. Because of the problem of the relative, relativity of motion, no observation, even one made with, a, with the telescope, of the objects in our planetary system could demonstrate the correctness of the heliocentric theory. Mathematical considerations could not determine which system is correct. For this reason, it should be clear why some scholars have characterized the choice between the two systems as one that rested on aesthetic considerations. Numerous problems beset the Copernican system. If the Earth moves around the Sun, stars should appear to shift their positions. Such an effect is called parallax. No such parallactic effects have ever been discovered. Copernicus tried to explain away this failure to find parallax by saying that the stars are so remote that that the effect, although present, is beyond the limits of observation. In this sense, the Copernican system infinitized the universe. Again, the scenario that modern science presents is just as ad hoc and irrational as Christianity. If space is infinite and everything is constantly changing, there is no such thing as motion. So we might as well close the book on heliocentrism from the get-go. The older empiricists, Democritus, for example, who were a bit more honest, admitted the problems and took motion as an axiom. If space is infinite and everything is changing, nothing can be identified, and thus nothing can be identified as having moved. Aristotle makes clear that for motion to be possible, quote, the primary reality, end quote, or substratum cannot change, for, quote, motion is known because of that which is moved, end quote. If motion begins with subject A and ends with subject P, subject A did not move. All that happened was numerous still subjects were presented in a location and replaced by another subject in another location. This is what happens in cartoons. In a cartoon, motion is an illusion, which is exactly what Einstein and Copernicus have fooled us with. The New Encyclopedia Britannica, 1998, volume 16, page 760, states, quote, a major contribution to Western thought was the publication in 1543 of De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium, Libri VI, or English translation, on the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres, 1952, Latin reprint, 1965, by Co- Copernicus. Henceforth, the Earth could no longer be considered the center of the cosmos. Rather, as one celestial body among many, it became subject to mathematical description, end quote. Yet, mathematics is fraught with its own mentally excruciating problems. Albert Einstein said, quote, As far as the laws of mathematics refer to reality, they are not certain, and as far as they are certain, they do not refer to reality, end quote. 
New York University mathematics professor Morris Klein said, quote, Thus one cannot speak of arithmetic as a body of truths that necessarily apply to physical phenomena. Of course, since algebra and anal analysis are extensions of arithmetic, these branches, too, are not bodies of truth. It seemed as though God had sought to confound them with several geometries and several algebras, just as he had confounded the people of Babel with different languages. Nature's laws are man's creation. End quote. For one, empiricist philosophers cannot distinguish between numeric substances. This leaves them with monism, which can in no way provide justification for the reality of numbers. Pythagoras, later Pythagoreans, and Euclid affirmed the monad, the ultimate principle without distinction and source of all numbers. Euclid defined the monad as, quote, that according to which everything that exists is called one, end quote. Numbers were extensions from the monad. This is all ad hoc, as Plotinus admitted later in his Enneads. How does distinction emanate from a distinctionless monad? Plotinus admitted he had no answer. Another problem with the Copernican system is defining what gravity is, which is essential to the heliocentric idea of planetary motion. Gordon Clark says, quote, As is known, the attraction of gravity in the Newtonian theory is directly proportional to the product of two masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. How could this law have been obtained by experimental procedures? It was not and could not have been ob ob obtained by measuring a series of lengths and, assuming unit masses, discovering that the value of the force equaled a fraction whose denominator was always the square of the distance. A length cannot be measured. Only an average is chosen among many variable measurements. If it could, the experimenter might have discovered that the force between the two masses, when they are a unit distance apart, was 100 units. He might then have measured the force when the two masses were two units apart and have discovered that it was 25 units. Any similar measurement at four units distance would have given the value of 6.25. The experimenter presumably would then have made a graph and indicated the values so obtained as points on the graph. Measuring four units on the x-axis, he would have put a dot 6.25 units above it. And at two units on the x-axis, he would have put a dot 25 units above it, and so on. By plotting a curve through these points, the experimenter would have discovered the law of gravity. <clears throat> but as has been seen, the length of a line cannot be measured the values for the forces, therefore, will not be numbers like 6.25, but something like 6.25.0043. And since the same difficulty inheres in measuring the distances, the scientists will not have unit distances, but other values with variable errors. When these values are transferred to a graph, they cannot be represented by points. <laughs> On the x-axis, the scientists will have to measure off two units, more or less, and on the y-axis, 6.25, more or less. It will be necessary to indicate these measurements, not by points, but by rectangular areas. But, as an elementary account of curves would show, through a series of areas, an infinite number of curves may be passed. <clears throat> to be sure... 
there is also an infinite number of curves that cannot be drawn through these particular areas, and therefore the experimental material definitely rules out an infinite number of equations, but this truth is irrelevant to the present argument. The important thing is that areas allow the possibility of an infinite number of curves. That is, measurements with variable errors allow an infinite number of natural laws. The particular law that the scientist announces to the world is not a discovery forced on him by so-called facts. It is rather a choice from among an infinity of laws, all of which enjoy the same experimental basis." End quote. Heliocentrism has been defended by the following arguments. One, the Coriolis effect. First, human beings have no knowledge of cause and effect concerning physical objects, as David Hume proved in his in his an inquiry concerning human understanding, section four. Secondly, is the Coriolis effect a force that causes an effect, or is it itself the effect of some force? You cannot have it both ways. Third, what documented evidence do you have that pre-guidance system pilots like Charles Lindbergh's 1927 flight from New York to Paris accounted for the Coriolis effect? A journey into world history and its use of geocentrism presents so many things that heliocentrists must explain. How did Ptolemy and his students predict eclipses so accurately in specific geographical locations for specific time periods if the Earth is really spinning a thousand miles per hour at the equator, or at least hundreds of miles per hour in other locations? How have astrologists fooled the world for so many centuries until this very day, seeing their system operates off of a geocentrist cosmology? Fourth, contrary to popular myth, quote, for very long-range missiles, the approach of celestial mechanics with non-rotating Earth-centered coordinates is used, end quote. That was from McGraw-Hill, Encyclopedia of Science and Technology, 10th edition, Ballistics. Fifthly, no image from space can be shown to prove the Earth is moving because such a satellite or space station cannot be in a fixed position as Einstein's relativity rules out any such thing as a fixed object. Sixthly, any basic airplane flight comprising movements east to west and west to east, or comparing movements, refutes the idea that the Earth is moving. I personally have taken two round-trip plane flights from Kentucky to California and back, and it took the same time to fly both directions. Seventh, any basic consideration of the news channel will disprove that the Earth is moving. I have many times witnessed meteorologists claim that storm clouds moving 20 to 30 miles per hour from the west will arrive in my hometown within the hour, while supposedly my hometown is moving away from this alleged storm front at hundreds of miles per hour. The ridiculous attempts to explain these contradictions from the heliocentrist commits one to claim ad hoc that the Earth's atmosphere is somehow velcroed to the Earth to make all this possible. Eighth, any soldier who has descended from a hovering helicopter can testify to you that the Earth does not move as he is climbing down the extended rope, or you can simply watch footage of this happening. Folks, it is all a big joke, and it would be funny if it were not couched in the darkest and most malicious counter-reformation motivations. Two, they so-called pendulum... Pendulums cannot demonstrate anything about physical reality. 
The pendulum is a device that suspends an object, traditionally a bob, from a fixed point. The object is said to move back and forth under the influence of the law of gravity, which, as we have already seen, is a myth. The principle behind the pendulum is, quote, the period of the swing is proportional to the square root of the length, end quote. First, according to Einstein, there is no such thing as a fixed point. Also, as Clark says, quote, if, however, the weight of the bob is unevenly displaced around its center, the law will not hold. The law assumes that the bob is homogeneous, that the weight is symmetrically distributed along all axes, or more technically, that the mass is concentrated at a point. No such bob exists, and hence the law is not an accurate description of any tangible pendulum. Second, the law assumes that the pendulum swings by a tensionless string. There is no such string, so that the scientific law does not describe any real pendulum. And third, the law could be true only if the pendulum swung on an axis without friction. There is no such axis. It follows, therefore, that no visible pendulum accords with the mathematical formula and that the formula is not a description of any existing pendulum, end quote. The only reply the scientist can conjure is that Clark is using science to disprove it, and thus he is giving it validity. Actually, he is criticizing the coherency of the system, and the ad hominem attack in this case is a demonstration of its incoherency and contradictory nature. The scientists want to play a game, very similar to Christians, where their theory is unfalsifiable. What else could he use to criticize science? The Bible? Three. The equatorial bulge. The equatorial bulge argument is guilty of the induction fallacy or asserting the consequent. This theory is not based on video footage of the subterranean elements of the Earth moving to create this bulge. Like everything else involved in heliocentrism, we are faced with a philosophical argument. Heliocentrists choose, out of an infinite number of possible explanations, the conclusion they want you to draw. The construction is a classic induction fallacy reaffirming the consequent. If P, then Q. Q, therefore P. If the Earth is moving, there will be a bulge at the equator. There is a bulge at the equator. Therefore, the Earth is moving. That is a logical fallacy. Why cannot the centrifugal force, whatever that means, of a rotating universe around a fixed Earth cause the bulge? Four, aberration of starlight. The heliocentrists assert the consequent that if the Earth is moving, the stars should appear to shift. Then they affirm that the stars do shift, thus the Earth is moving. This is again the logical fallacy of induction, or affirming the consequent. Rejecting Ptolemy's idea that the stars are attached to a rotating universe, they demand, using the logical fallacy of false dilemma, that there is only one alternative to Ptolemy, namely heliocentrism. Now I would like to dive into the insane mind of Albert Einstein for a moment. It is... The evolution of physics, he says, quote, Take two bodies, the sun and the earth, for instance. The motion we observe is again relative. It can be described by connecting the CS, or coordinate system, frame of reference, with either the earth or the sun. From this point of view, Copernicus's great achievement lies in transferring the coordinate system from the earth to the sun. But as motion is relative and any frame of reference can be used, there seems to be no reason for favoring one coordinate system rather than the other. <clears throat> Physics, again, inter intervenes and changes our common sense point of view. 
The coordinate system connected with the sun resembles an inertial system more than that connected with the earth. The physical law should be applied to Copernicus's coordinate system rather than to Ptolemy's. The greatness of Copernicus's discovery can be appreciated only from the phys physical point of view. It, it illustrates the great advantage of using a coordinate system connected rigidly with the sun for describing the motion of planets, end quote. <clears throat> The problem is, the inertial grid is an illusion for modern science can give no account for any such thing as a line or anything in motion on that imaginary line due to Darwin's and Einstein's demand of constant change. Lines require fixed points, and Einstein denies the existence of any such thing. Moreover, here it appears that Einstein's construction must appeal to the Christian, Platonic, and Neoplatonic concept of Hooperousia. If indeed, quote, motion is relative and any frame of reference can be used, then we can conclude that motion between two bodies, such as a train station and a locomotive, can be seen at any frame of reference. Thus, we can affirm that it is just as possible for the train station to be moving towards the locomotive at 60 miles per hour, as vice versa. Relativity then transcends Uzia and affirms that all activity in a subject is absolutely arbitrary. It is a form of cosmological Pelagianism and nominalism. A few more items to consider. One, Galileo renounced heliocentrism in his later years. Galileo states, quote, the falsity of the Copernican system should not in any way be called into question, above all, not by Catholics, since we have the unshakable authority of the sacred scripture interpreted by the most erudite theologians, whose consensus gives us certainty regarding the stability of the earth situated in the center and the motion of the sun around the earth. The conjectures employed by Copernicus and his followers in maintaining the contrary theses thesis are all sufficiently rebutted by that most solid argument deriving from the omnipotence of God. He is able to bring about in different ways, indeed, in an infinite number of ways, things that, according to our opinion and observation, appear to happen in one particular way. We should not seek to shorten the hand of God and boldly insist on something beyond the limits of our competence." End quote. Two, many scientists and philosophers of science have admitted that the heliocentrist theory was never proved. Stephen Hawking, quote, So which is real, the Ptolemaic or the Copernican system? Although it is not uncommon for people to say that Copernicus proved Ptolemy wrong, that is not true. As in the case, our normal view versus that of the goldfish, one can use either picture as a model of the universe. For our observations of the heavens can be explained by assuming either the earth or the sun to be at rest, end quote. Bertrand Russell, quote, The merit of the Copernican hypothesis is not truth, but simplicity. In view of the relativity of motion, no question of truth is involved, end quote. Alfred North Whitehead, quote, Galileo said that the earth moves and that the sun is fixed. The Inquisition said that the earth is fixed and the sun moves. And Newtonian astronomers adopting an absolute theory of space said that both the sun and the earth move. But now we say that any one of these three statements is equally true, provided that you have fixed your sense of, quote, rest and motion in the way required by the statement adopted, end quote. 
Three, Copernicus's system was said to be the simpler system because earlier he affirmed only 34 epicycles, yet his 1543 construction contained 48 epicycles, eight more than Ptolemy. Four, in Giovanni Riccioli's Astronomia Reformata, Tycho Brahe's model was modified to include elliptical orbits, and Riccioli remained a geocentrist until his death. Five, Luca Popov, author of, quote, Newton Machian Analysis of Neo-Tychonian Model of Planetary Motions, end quote, published by the European Journal of Physics, 34, 383, quote, aim to demonstrate the kinematical and dynamical equivalence of heliocentric and geocentric systems, end quote, also wrote, quote, stellar parallax in the Neo-Tychonian planetary system, end quote, submitted to the same journal, defining the mathematical explanation of the Tychonian geocentric... Six, if the stars are considered centered on the sun as it rotates around the motionless Earth, all the stellar parallax is easily explained, as Sungenis cites, quote, it is often said that Tycho's model implies the absence of parallax and that Copernicus's requires parallax. However, it would not be a major conceptual change to have the stars orbit the sun like the planets for, for Tycho, which would give the same yearly shifts in their apparent positions as parallax gives. Thus, if parallax were observed, a flexible Tychonian could adjust the theory to account for it without undue complexity. What if parallax were not observed? For Copernicus, one only requires that the stars be far enough away for the parallax to be unmeasurable. <laughs> Therefore, the presence or absence of parallax doesn't force the choice of one type of model over the other. If different stars were to show different amounts of parallax, that would rule out the possibility of them all being on one sphere, but still not really decide between Tycho and Copernicus. In fact, if we don't worry about the distant stars, these two models describe identical relative motions of all the objects in the solar system. So the role of observation is not as direct as you might have guessed. There is no bare observation that can distinguish whether Tycho, taken broadly, or Copernicus, taken broadly, is right. End quote. That's from the University of Illinois, Physics 319, Spring 2004, Lecture 3, page 8. <clears throat> 7. The Foucault pendulum can be explained by the universe rotating around the Earth pursuant to the, Cori to the Coriolis effect. 8. Albert Einstein invented his theory of relativity to explain away the geocentrist demonstration of the Michelson-Morley experiment. Einstein stated, quote, While I was thinking of this problem in my student years, I came to know the strange result of Michelson's experiment. Soon I came to the conclusion that our idea about the motion of the Earth with respect to the ether is incorrect if we admit Michelson's null result as a fact. This was the first path which led me to the special theory of relativity. Since then, I have come to believe that the motion of the Earth cannot be detected by any optical experiment, though the Earth is revolving around the Sun. End quote. Objection. Geocentrism cannot be explained according to the laws of physics. There is no way to work out the mathematics of it. <clears throat> Answer. I have no problem admitting it, for the so-called laws of physics are man's confusions and a product of his narcissism. Bertrand Russell said, quote, 
All inductive arguments in the last resort reduce themselves to the following form. If this is true, that is true. Now this is now that is true, therefore this is true. This argument is, of course, formally fallacious. Suppose I were to say, if bread is a stone and stones are nourishing, then this bread will nourish me. Now this bread does nourish me, therefore it is a stone and stones are nourishing. If I were to advance such an argument, I should certainly be thought foolish, yet it would not be fundamentally different from the argument upon which all scientific laws are based. End quote. Morris Klein said, quote, Thus one cannot speak of arithmetic as a body of truths that necessarily apply to physical phenomena. Of course, since algebra and analysis are extensions of arithmetic, these branches, too, are not bodies of truth. It seemed as though God had sought to confound them with several geometries and several algebras, just as he had confounded the people of Babel with different languages. Nature's laws are man's creation. We, not God, are the lawgivers of the universe. A law of nature is man's description and not God's prescription. End quote. Gordon Clark says, quote, At best, scientific law is a construction rather than a discovery and that construction depends on factors never seen under a microscope, never weighed in a balance, never handled or manipulated. The given hypothesis implies certain definite results. The experiment actually gives these results. Therefore, the hypothesis is verified and, and can be called a law. Obviously, this argument is the fallacy of affirming the consequent, and since all verification must commit this fallacy, it follows that no law or, or hypothesis can ever be logically demonstrated. End quote. Objection. If the sun and the stars are rotating around the earth, the stars would have to be moving at the speed of light. Answer. Your calculation of how far away the stars are, and thus the speed they must be moving to rotate around the earth, is determined by a heliocentric view of parallax. You are assuming what must first be proved or begging the question fallacy. All right. So that was all I wanted to read on that. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I just want to say, I mean, I know Chris Kendall is not an atheist, but, uh, everything said there still applies to him because uh, he's operating off the ex exact same arbitrary and fallacious and circular basis. Um, he assumes his own reason as the standard and the authority, and he assumes his own sensation as the standard and authority. So it all reduces to the arbitrary, the inconsistent, the circular, and the unjustifi unjustifiable. He has an epistemology that cannot be justified, where knowledge is impossible. Whereas uh, my epistemology is justified because uh, I assume that God has given me revelation uh, by way of the Bible, and I deduce from that validly. I deduce conclusions that are necessitated from the axioms that he revealed in the Bible, he is my objective standard, my arbiter of all truth and knowledge, and thus I can have a consistent epistemology, and I can actually justify knowledge, whereas you can't, 
assuming yourself as the standard and your own reason and your own sensation. So that'll be my word for the day, and uh, hopefully Chris Kendall will listen to this and hopefully get back with me sometime. If not, I guess uh, I'll just let this stand. So uh, thanks, guys, for listening, and I will see you next time. All right, bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.